Well, this has been quite a week for us. I, I, uh, Karen and I have a new grandson. Um, yeah, Bowden, amen. And that's really exciting, yes. And so as, as Tess was in the hospital with Brian bringing Bowden into the world, we had the privilege of having Grayson and Geneva at our house. And it's always fun for a grandparent to have two, uh, for three-year-old and under staying in your house, amen. Amen, can you say routine? Right, yeah, no, but but it's really interesting. I love having them over because it's always fun to get illustrations. But um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had some cousins staying with us as well. And now, one of the things about our house is we work really hard to make it as kid-proof as possible so that when kids come over, they can enjoy and have fun. And so we do that. But there is one really dangerous place in our house, the basement stairs, okay? And those basement stairs are open, right? So that, you know, if, if you're not careful, a little one who doesn't yet know how to navigate basement stairs really well could easily tumble down and experience some, all sorts of hardship, and which some of our grandkids have done. But in this, when, when Grayson was born, we bought this really cool gate and put it right across the opening so that he is kept from going to that place of danger. And because he grew up with that gate in place, he knew that when the gate was in place, that meant that you couldn't go there. And, and of course, Geneva also was able to grab onto that, that idea, and so she's never gone either. But a couple of weeks ago, some older cousins were over, and um, those older cousins had never experienced the gate, and so when they saw the gate and wanted to go downstairs where the playroom is, they just <laughs> climbed over the gate, right? Guess who knows how to climb over the gate now? <laughs> right, Grayson knows. That's called discipleship. <laughs> right, think about it. We are here, one of the things that we're passionate about here at Calvary is that we would become disciples of Christ who would be able to make disciples who can make disciples. And so what that means is, and, and clearly the gate was protecting from danger, but as you grow closer and closer to the Lord, as you understand his presence more, you come to places where the gates that have kept you from knowing him, you learn to, to climb over those gates and you learn what it means to come ever closer in your relationship with who God is. And as you learn that, as you learn what it means to become closer to God, you look back and find someone. So Grayson is now getting ready to teach Geneva how to get over the gate. Amen. And so as you learn what it means to know Christ, to know his presence in your life, as you rest in that, as you put your trust in him alone, who are you looking back to see? Let me show you the adventure that waits as you come to know Christ more and more and more. And so there's this beautiful idea. And what discipleship is really is a journey to completion. It's a journey to completion. <laughs> and as we look at that, in this exciting letter of James, we're going to see what that means. Now, completion, could I say to you, is something that we could never achieve this side of heaven, this side of our eternal presence with God. And yet, it is the journey that we are to be on. And this idea of completion, what it is, is the image of God 
restored to its original beauty in us. Completion is the image of God restored to its original beauty in us. And as you come to a place where you trust God and you trust in Jesus as your savior, you begin a journey. And James in his letter is is helping us to understand what it looks like to reach that completion. Now James is a fascinating letter and I'm excited to study it with you over the next few weeks here and even months as we look at the truth of what it means to reach this place of completion. James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? Right? I mean... My sisters grew up with someone who was really good, but not quite that good, right? No. So there's something about growing up with Jesus and the person who never sinned. But as well, growing up with Jesus meant that you were raised by the parents who raised Jesus. Now that's significant. Remember that in all history, as God, as God looked to send his son to earth, as he looked over all of history, he chose two people. He chose Mary to bear his son through an immaculate conception, through, through a virgin birth, and then he chose Joseph to be the one who would raise his son on earth for him. These were two people who were chosen to raise the Son of God. They were trusted with that. And then God took those two people who who he trusted with raising his son, and so they would observe all the things that they needed to observe in their home in order for him to remain sinless, and so he took that couple and he blessed them with more children. And so those children were also raised by parents who Mary said, may it be to me as you have said. And Joseph said, okay, I'll take her as my wife. These were two people who were incredibly committed. So James grew up in this home where he saw parents who were committed to serving the Lord. And he grew up with the Son of God. Now apparently he didn't, understand or believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But scripture tells us that after Jesus was risen from the dead, he appeared specially to James. Somehow, some way, there was a special appearing of Jesus to James. And something in that appearing changed James' life. And he became a believer and all the things he had looked at, and all the things he had studied, and all the things that he had heard became shape in his life, and he became James the Just, and, and oversaw the church in Jerusalem and around the world. And this James writes a letter to the dispersed tribes, to the, the 12 tribes in dispersion. Now, when it's written to the 12 tribes in dispersion, that means it's written to Jewish people, and he's writing to believers, so he's writing Jewish believers scattered all over the known world. And he writes to them to help them understand what it means to be brought to completion. 
And as he writes to them, we can learn for ourselves. Now, it's, it's lightning fast as you look at the book of James. He's clearly been influenced by Jesus' teaching, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. As you look through James, you'll see all sorts of places where the Sermon on the Mount just percolates through. In addition, he's clearly been influenced by the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, specifically the wisdom books. As a matter of fact, many of the things you see in James are things that you would find in the book of Proverbs. So there's these wisdom and these quips that we see. In the 108 verses of James, over 50 of them contain imperatives. And a lot of those imperatives are ones that we've heard and we remember. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so they become imperatives, but they don't become imperatives that, that are meant to restrict us. Rather, they are meant to help us understand what it means to be on this journey to completion. And in order to do that, I need my clicker. Where do you suppose I put that, Karen? How are you? She loves it when I draw attention to her. Amen? Amen. All right. The journey, speaking of life and death. Okay, so the journey. <laughs> oh, that, that was cool. All right, so the journey to completion is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. We're gonna go through these first few verses pretty quickly here in James, but I want you to see that really, it's not optional. Moses, when he was talking to that generation that was going to step into the promised land in Deuteronomy, he said, look, today I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life that you may live. And James, in many ways, is doing this as well. He's laying it before you and saying, this is a matter of life and death. To come to completion, to have that original design brought back to life in you, is so crucial. So the first thing we see as we look at this is that the journey to completion requires the right perspective. Verse two, chapter one, James. Count it all joy, my brothers. Brothers, it's brothers and sisters is what he's talking about. But right there we see he's talking to believers. He's talking to people who've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's one of the most amazing things about coming to a place in your life where you recognize that your sin has separated you from God and you come and you turn yourself over to him and you repent of the things that you've done wrong. He asks God to forgive you. And tells us in scripture that as many as received him to them, he gave the right to be called the children of God. So if you've come to a place where you've trusted Jesus as your savior, you're a child of God. And that makes you a brother or sister with every person who's ever done that. And so James writes and he says, hey, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces righteousness. Steadfastness, I'm sorry. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he starts out by saying, listen, you have to have the right perspective. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. See, that requires a different perspective than what we normally have. How many of you, when you come to a trial, go, yes, right? 
And yet there are places in our life where that happens. Okay, if, if you're trying to, to build up your body, you know, if you're trying to get a physique that, that is one that's enviable, you know, and you start lifting weights and that trial comes and you're going to the next weight, you come to that trial and then you get through that trial and you're like, yes! And see, that trial was helpful because it was building you up, I've heard. And so, as, as you think about that, that's what James is saying. You need to have the right perspective. The trial that you are experiencing, whatever that may be, is there to test your faith, to try your faith. As, as you test your muscles, as you lift that weight, you are testing your faith as you experience that trial. And if you do that in a way that is helpful, you will build your faith and you will produce steadfastness. And steadfastness, I'm sure and I'm confident that every one of us have used that word in a sentence this past week, right? What is that that it's producing? We'll look at it more in the fourth point, but, but to consider that it produces in us heroic endurance. Heroic endurance. And so there's this idea in which if I can see that God, who has my best in mind, is helping to bring these tests into my life, these trials into my life, so that my faith can be built... We sang in the song, I will trust in you alone. Now how does that happen? It happens as we go through these trials and we realize that Jesus is the one, the Holy Spirit comes into us and gives us the power to make it through these trials and we begin to trust in him to take the lead. Now it says trials of various kinds. Lots of times when we think of trials, we can put a negative connotation on it, right? And, and yet, it seems that James is talking about different kinds of trials. And sometimes, things that happen in our lives that, that seem really positive and really good can actually become a trial because they test who we will trust in. Right, so if I, if I have a, a windfall of money, what will I do with that? Will I trust in that, or will I trust in God's provision? If I, if I enter into a relationship that's just perfect, do I put my trust in that relationship, or do I put my trust in God? So anything has the potential to draw us away from trusting in the presence of God and the power of God in our lives. So when those trials come, whether they be apparently good or apparently bad, we can count it joy because we know that God is interested in building up our faith. And that leads us to the second point, right? It's a journey, the journey to completion, the journey to the image of God being restored in its original beauty in our lives, that, that journey requires the right perspective and it also requires faith. It requires faith. And the next set of verses starting there with verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. I, I think that's very gracious on James' part, right? 
You know, he says, if any of you lack wisdom. I think I would say, since you lack wisdom. You know, but he's generous here. He's gracious. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. So, in one way, there's this requirement of wisdom. If we're going to take that journey to completion, if we're going to have that completion, we need to be looking for wisdom, and we need to have wisdom in our lives, and and there is this truth in which we do lack wisdom. But James, being well aware of Proverbs, would would have a, a good handle on wisdom, and I would urge you to Take some time to read the first few chapters of Proverbs and and realize what it talks about, the importance of gaining wisdom and why wisdom is so important. But as James is unpacking that here, he says that you need wisdom, but the way to get wisdom is to ask in faith. That faith, and faith as you look at it, is more than just belief, it's a trust in God. It's trusting in God. And so what he's really getting at here is this idea of this this wisdom, the discipline of applying truth to your life in light of experience, so taking the experiences you have and and, and applying truth to those experiences, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the trusting in God is the beginning of wisdom, Warren Wiersbe of these verses says that we need to ask God for the wisdom not to waste the trial so that we don't have to go through the trial again, amen? So as these trials come into our lives, in one regard, we're asking for wisdom, but we're asking of God who gives generously. Now that word in the original language for generously is a word that has some connotations in several other passages where it's used that talk about this singleness of God or the sincerity of God. That if you ask God for wisdom, there's a sincerity in him, a generous sincerity that longs to bring that into your life. It's, it's a focus of his. He longs to bring wisdom into your life. And he longs to answer that prayer without reproach. So it's like if you were if you, if you did something very unwise yesterday and you come to him and you say, Lord, I need your wisdom, he's not gonna say, why didn't you ask me yesterday? He's looking to bestow that upon you generously and he's looking to, to impose it upon you sincerely. But it says, you need to ask in faith without doubting. And that idea of doubting plays itself out at the end of these Versus in the double-mindedness. So this doubting, if you will, is a, a, a double-minded or, or even some, some interpreters say that the word for that is double-souled. So it's having this, this conflict of what you're looking for. It's being divided in what you want. And, and James says if you're divided in that, you shouldn't think that you'll get what you're looking for. It's interesting, the graphic on the front of your bulletin and that I showed earlier shows the jigsaw puzzle. 
And, and the jigsaw puzzle has all these pieces, and if you think of it, when you put a jigsaw puzzle together, the picture is complete, but all the lines are still there, right? I like to put jigsaw puzzles together on the computer. It's, it's a way that I just, yeah, anyway. The cool thing about it is when you finish, all the lines go away. And so you finish putting the puzzle together and it becomes the picture without the lines. That's the completeness that we're looking to get. So that there's no separateness in our lives. There's no double-mindedness. So it's like we sit here and we sing these songs on Sundays and, and, and we sing these amazing songs that I will put my trust in you alone. And then you go out and life happens. And the next thing you know, you're trusting yourself or you're trusting somebody else, or you're trusting something else. And this double-mindedness of thinking, I will trust in you alone. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And so there's this part of us, this part that's been renewed by God that believes that, but there's this whole other part in us that we're constantly struggling against. And so James says, listen, you need to have faith in this journey to completion. You must trust in God as you ask him for wisdom. And you must apply his wisdom to your life if you're going to experience completion. The journey to completion is a matter of life and death. It requires the right perspective. It requires faith. It requires the right goal the right goal. In verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So now James talking to the believers again. And he's talking to the, the poor or lowly brother. And he's also talking, I'm sorry, he's also talking to the rich brother. See, it's okay to be a child of God and be rich. Did you know that? And it's okay to be a child of God and to have need. And the important thing is, what are you going to boast in? And if you're not careful, you begin to boast in the things that are temporary, the things of this world. And the things of this world are very transient. They're passing away. They're momentary. And as we begin to boast in those things, we begin to miss out on what the true boast should be in our lives. Jeremiah, in chapter 9 and verses 23 and forward, the Lord says this, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Listen, if you're gonna boast in anything, boast in the fact that you know the presence of God in your life. Amen? See, and when you begin to realize that the presence of God in my life is, is the most valuable thing that I have, it is the greatest treasure there could be. And you begin to realize this, and you begin to place your goal 
to be knowing the presence of God ever more in your life that you could more and more know his presence. And pretty soon, whether if you're a person in a lowly position and you've got Jesus, you're like, I got Jesus. And if you've got everything that you could possibly need in Jesus, you're gonna say, none of that means anything to me except Jesus. Because what does he require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. And see, so you realize that that whatever he gives you here, you're a steward of. And if you're a steward of hardship that comes from lowliness, you look forward to that moment in time when you will be completed in his presence. And if you're given riches beyond measure to steward for him here, you are humbled by the fact that that's nothing you've done. That's his provision in your life. And you say, God, whatever your will is, you do that. And your goal becomes embracing the presence of God. Paul in Philippians puts it this way. Brothers, I do not consider myself as yet having taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And all of us who are mature should take such a view of these things. As we grow to completion, our goal becomes the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the goal is not heaven. The goal is the presence of God because that's where he is. But his Holy Spirit lives inside of you now. And so the goal is to become so aware of his presence in your life that you are able to boast in that and in that alone. And you've done nothing for that. It's all what he's done in your life. It's a matter of life and death. The journey to completion requires the right perspective, requires faith, requires the right goal, and finally, it requires the steadfastness. The steadfastness, this heroic endurance. Blessed is the man. Again comes this beatitude, this blessing that falls on you. Blessed is the man, the person who remains steadfast under trial, who has this heroic endurance in trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. See, there's this beautiful thing that happens as you journey in this path to completion and as you take each one of these steps, you begin to gain heroic endurance. And, and Paul, or James says, as you do that, as you take a strong and active response to the trials that come in your life, as you step into those and ask God to reveal himself and to trust in that, you will receive the crown of life crown of life. Now this is a, a victor's crown that's being taught of, talked about here. It's not a king's royal crown. It's a, a, a wreath of, of, of participating in a race and winning and getting that victor's crown. So it's this idea of as you, as you run with this unbelievable heroic endurance, you will come into the presence of your Savior who will give you this amazing crown of life. And James goes on to say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. 
And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully born, gives, or brings forth death. So here it is, life and death have been let out before us in these couple of verses. And there is a crown of life that's available for those who run with this heroic endurance, who, who have gone to a place where they've, they've counted these trials as joy so the, the, the strength of their faith can be built, who have come to trust in God and in his provisions for their lives, and, and who have set their goal, that, that idea of the presence of God and being in his presence. When you do that, you will experience life. But on the other side, there's this idea during the testing, and, and as we look at that, the original word, the word in the original language, that word for temptation and testing is the same word, and so in some ways as we look at this verse, we could say, let no one say when he is being tested (coughs) or going through the trial in his life that he is being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Now this is hugely important, excuse me. All right, round two. So when you're being tested or tempted, it's really important, don't say God's tempting me. That's not what's happening here. See, God's not looking to tempt you. He's looking to test you. He's looking to bring trials into your life so your faith can be built. You see, his tests are to strengthen you, not to destroy you. It's not like God is longing for you to step into sin and that's what temptation is all about. Now we understand and know, and in other parts of James, he'll talk about Satan tempting, but here he just says, you're doing that on your own. It's your desires that are causing you to sin. It's your desires that are causing you to be tempted with evil. It's your desire. See, and and here's where we get mixed up, because we live in a day and age where people are, it's like, We believe that people are basically good and just need to be made better. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches the heart is deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. Scripture teaches there's no one righteous, not even one. Scripture teaches that we've been totally depraved by sin. We are are people who are bad, who need a savior. We are not good people who need to be better. We stand under the wrath of God, totally separated from him because of our sin. And only because of Jesus Christ is it possible for us to be in a right relationship with him. And so these desires within ourselves, this double-mindedness, if you look at double-mindedness, what it really is, it's a battle between my desires and God's desires. My sinful desires, it's a duel within us, and that double-mindedness is this duel between these two desires. And James says, listen, you're not being tempted by God. You're doing that on your own. You've got all these evil desires that were part of your life in the past, and you've grown to love them. And now you look at those things, and you're lured and enticed by them. Do you have things in your life like that? 
Is there anything in your life that you know is harmful to you, and yet you, you look at it, and you dwell on it, and you begin to think about it, then you, you begin to rationalize in your, in your heart that, there's, that you should step into that? See, as you grow and as you come along in this journey to completion, as you become more and more complete, more and more the, the person who's embracing the, the image of God in your life, the, the way that the original design was, as you come closer to that, it's not that you will be tempted less. And in many ways, the more you rely on the presence of God in your life, the more you're gonna realize the ways you are tempted. Because there's a whole lot of ways in our lives that we're tempted that we're numb to. Because we've kept ourselves so far from God that his purity hasn't shined on him. Isaiah in chapter six says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I long a people of unclean lips. Up to that point, Isaiah had been saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, and then he sees God and he says, woe to me. And all of a sudden, the things in our lives, as we grow closer and closer into the presence of God, it's so amazing because he wants and longs for you to experience the purity that comes from experiencing the joy in his presence and the sin in your life distracts you from the presence of God. It takes you away from that presence. It takes you away from his image being restored to you in its original beauty. And so as he, as he speaks here, he says, listen, don't give birth to sin because it forms death. It forms death in you. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing salvation verse. But that verse in context is written to believers. And it's written to let you know, dear friends, that any sin in your life leads to death. It leads to a separation between you and God. Now, if you've been saved, you're your, your salvation is secure and it's held in heaven for you, amen, but you can still separate yourself from the presence of God by choosing to bring sin into your life, by, by letting yourself be lured, enticed, and tempted away and allow that temptation to burst into a sin in your life. The wage of that sin is death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift, I love this verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Encourage you to grab a diving in devotional on your way out, check it out online, and go into this a lot deeper. But that first fruit is the guarantee of a harvest. So it's a matter of life and death. A matter of life and death. Joy, faith, wisdom, steadfastness, that equals life. That equals intimacy with God. Temptation, desire, sin, that brings death, that brings a separation from God.
That journey to completion is a journey towards intimacy, life. So, I put before you today, life and death, blessings and cursings. What will you choose? So what? How are you doing on your journey to completion? Are you working on that? Are you striving toward that? Are you striving toward that time in your life where the image of God in you is restored to its original beauty? Now that doesn't happen fully till we hit heaven, but it can come dangerously close here. And what intentional steps do you need to take? Father, I thank you for James. I thank you for this amazing truth that we've looked at today, this completion that's possible for us. Forgive us for the times we doubt, for the times we're double-minded, for the times we lack faith, for the times we doubt your good hand, that every good and perfect gift comes from you, that you have brought us into your kingdom of light, Father of lights. Stir in our hearts, Lord. Stretch us and grow us that we could become bearers of your image. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we head out and hear God's good word for you. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, an amazing blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen? Amen. Oh, God bless you. I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship. God bless.